Good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Dustin. I'm on staff here at South Point. And we are have currently in this series and wrapping up this series called Therefore, in which we've been reading this letter called Ephesians, written by a man named Paul from a Roman prison cell. And this letter was written to these Jesus followers in a city called Ephesus. And in this letter, Paul has laid out everything having to do with this epic cosmic love story between God and his people and everything that God has done for them. And, and for transparency, we're about to read the finale and conclusion of this letter. And, and Paul is going to talk very specifically about spiritual warfare and fighting against spiritual dark forces. And if you haven't been with us, or even if you have, it might feel a little bit like Paul's been talking about all this other stuff, and now at the very end, he's going to plug this idea like, oh yeah, also there's an enemy and all these spiritual forces that are working against you, and this is how you protect yourself. But what I think is important to understand is that really all this talk about spiritual warfare and these deep spiritual matters and this love story between God and his people, it's really been the theme of this entire letter as we've read through this. And and Paul's been talking about this stuff the entire time. And so just understand as we read through this, if it feels a little bit like a left turn, it's not. The end of Ephesians chapter 6 isn't like an add-on to the rest of the letter. It's actually this grand summary of the entire book of Ephesians. And I just want to get into it. I love this passage. Let's look at how Paul wraps this letter up. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. If you have your Bibles, if not, the words will be on the screen. And this is what Paul writes. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Not your might, his might. If you depend on your might, you'll fail. You depend on your own discipline, your own devotion. Your best intentions are not going to be good enough. We have to depend on the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, reminding us that he's in prison writing this, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. If I could, I'd like to give you the giant underlying theme of this entire passage, this entire book of Ephesians, and, and really our entire lives as Paul gets into it. And it's, it's that this, everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. Nothing in this life is ordinary. There are no ordinary days. Today is not an ordinary day. There are no ordinary interactions. There are no ordinary decisions. It's all spiritual. Like there's a layer to all of this, to this life that we just cannot see. And yet it's these things that we cannot see which are constantly influencing and controlling the things that we can see. 
And I'm telling you guys, the world does not like messages like this. I'm aware that even saying these things makes me look like a clinically crazy person. Like, you mean to tell me that there are actually spiritual forces of good and evil in the universe at work all the time, fighting for the whole souls of human beings, trying to fight for our attention and get us to focus on all these different things and trying to influence how we experience this life and where we experience eternity? Like, you expect me to believe that? And I'm saying you can believe whatever you want, but I'm telling you that's exactly what's going on. And the thing is, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, I think many of us will give lip service and at least like verbally acknowledge that we believe this is going on. But I think a lot of times, with how we live our lives and the decisions that we make, I think a lot of times we live like nothing's really spiritual. Like there are no real spiritual consequences for the decisions that we make, but it's all spiritual. I wonder if we'd pick up our phones less if we actually believe that the things we're looking at directly are influencing like our souls. If there was a spiritual consequence for those. Like social media or porn or games or news, entertainment, whatever worldly flavor you prefer. I wonder if we'd pick up our phones less if we actually believe that every time we start scrolling on these devices that they are molding and manipulating our actual souls. For those of us that are married, I, I, I wonder if in our marriages, I wonder if you believe that marriage is a spiritual relationship, I wonder if it would redefine how you interact with your spouse. I don't think it's a coincidence if you were here with us last week that Paul wrote about marriage in the passage right before he starts talking about spiritual warfare. And it's because marriage isn't some standalone topic, marriage is deeply spiritual. That's why it's paired right beside this talk of spiritual warfare. Like when you look at your spouse, what is it that you see? Like do you see an object of desire? An object to make you happy? Like a means to an end? The means being your spouse, the end being your own personal fulfillment? Because if that's how you view marriage, then congratulations, that's exactly the way the rest of the world views marriage. And if you only view marriage as a means to make you happy and feel fulfilled, then you're going to do the same thing with your marriage that kids do with old Christmas toys when they stop feeling happy and fulfilled by them, it's going to be easy to just throw it out. Either divorce or cheating or just like giving up trying. That's why the divorce rate's so high. It's because marriage is deeply spiritual and few people see it or treat it that way. But I wonder if it would make an impact if, if you looked at your spouse and you saw someone who carries the image of the living God someone who's worthy of dignity and respect and sacrifice, someone who's worth laying down your own wants and your desires and even your life, someone who you will always fight to show love and serve them and pour into them. I wonder if seeing your marriage as spiritual and not just some ordinary worldly thing, I wonder if that would influence how we approach it. What about our kids, for those of us who have kids? And I bet if we believed that the words we spoke to our children had intense spiritual ramifications, I bet we'd be really careful and intentional about the things we say to them. If these devices, these phones and tablets are spiritual, I wonder if we would just let our kids mindlessly feed their souls worldly things all the time. I mean, you can hate me if you want to hate me for saying these things, but like suicide rates among teenagers and kids even like under the age of 10 are skyrocketing. And people want to act like they don't understand why, but I know why. It's because everything's spiritual and so many parents are doing nothing to nurture and protect the souls of their children. 
And if we don't, I know an enemy who will. What about your job? How do you view your job? Is it just ordinary, some worldly thing? Is it just a throwaway? No, it's not. It's deeply spiritual. Your job, if you have one, is actually one of the biggest spiritual battlegrounds of your life. When you work, like who do you commit that work to? You commit it to your boss, probably not. Commit it to yourself, maybe your family. It's just a way to put bread on the table, right? No, it's not. It's a deeply spiritual. Yes, for the people around you. Yes, there are people who need to hear about Jesus in your workplace, but I mean it's spiritual for you. Like you'll live and die spiritually based on what happens in those six to ten hours a day or if you're a stay-at-home parent in those 24 hours a day. Like your headspace, who and what you think about, how you interact with people, where your passion and energy comes from, like it's all so deeply spiritual. And what's crazy about this is that so many Christians separate their work life away from their spiritual life. Like they'll try to do their job solely by their own power, no prayer, no worship, no thinking about God, no inviting him in, no turning to him for guidance and strength. Like you go on your lunch break, or maybe you just take a break and go hide in the bathroom, sit on the toilet and do what? You just start scrolling again. Not reading scripture, not dwelling on the things of God. I mean, we think this stuff doesn't matter, but all of it does. It's all spiritual. And I'm telling you, until you understand that, these things that you don't think are spiritual will continue to suck the spiritual life out of you without you even knowing it. Like your fire, maybe you used to spiritually be on fire, like you were on fire and crazy for God and it's just like fizzled out over time. And I'm telling you, it didn't fizzle out over time. I'm telling you, spiritual forces snuffed it out through the things that you thought had no impact on your spiritual life. Everything is spiritual. And so we're going to look today at this passage, and we're going to just discuss two ways, two ways in which spiritual warfare plays out practically in our life. You can think about all the supernatural, heady, theoretical things that happen and get lost in that, but like practically, spiritual warfare happens, it's real, and there's a practical way we can look at it, and I just want to look at two of them this morning. And the first way that spiritual warfare plays out practically in our lives is that spiritual growth never goes unchallenged by the enemy. Never. Verses 11 and 12 say, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is real and he is scheming against you all the time. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What a verse, right? That's pretty intense. Let me ask you a question. When you read this passage and you hear that we are in a spiritual battle with forces of evil, in your head, what do you think we're fighting for? Like we're in a fight, so we must be fighting over something, right? What do you think we're fighting for? You see, I think a lot of Christians, especially in America, think we're fighting over the world. Like the devil wants the world to fall apart. God wants to restore the world and God and like Christians are just like God's foot soldiers and we're standing strong on the front lines to call out the evil in the world and try to set right everything that's been broken. That's why you see Christians standing on street corners with signs or going crazy on social media just calling out all these individual sins and telling people how evil they are and how messed up they are and telling people if you don't change your ways you're going to end up in hell. 
It's because they see themselves as in a battle with spiritual dark forces like over the morality and soul of our planet. We gotta, we're going to save the world. Guess what? No. No. We're not saving the world. Now, we are vessels by which the kingdom of God can enter this world. But just so you're aware, I don't know if you've read this book, but the world's going to continue to descend into darkness. It's going to continue to fall apart. But then there's going to come a day where God is going to come and he will eradicate all the evil and then he is going to restore it. He and he alone. There was a song growing up that if you grow up in church um, as a kid, then there was a song that used to go, I'm in the Lord's army. And you'd like sing it and like march like you were a soldier. And fun song. Fun song. Theologically, kind of a mess though. Kind of a mess. You see, we're not soldiers here to defeat the evil in the world and stop people from doing bad things. That's not our role. The truth is, the reality is, if you said yes to Jesus, you're just a beggar. You were starving and you found bread. And your job now is to tell starving people where they also can find that bread. Not here to change their behavior. You're not here to try to conquer evil in the world. You're not fighting over the world. So what are you fighting over? We're not fighting over the soul and morality of our planet. What are we fighting over? Well, you're fighting over you, your heart, your soul. Like that's what's on the line here. That's what you're fighting for. I know it seems simple and it seems elementary, but that's what it is. Because here's the truth. Here's the truth. The truth is giving your heart to God and like staying faithful to him is the hardest thing to do on this planet. It's harder than getting in shape. It's harder than eating right. Harder than not saying cuss words and not getting drunk and not sinning. It's harder than running a marathon or winning a Super Bowl. I am telling you that giving your heart to God and God alone and keeping your focus on him is the hardest thing to do in this life. Why? Because literally everything wants a piece of you. Everything wants a piece of you. Your heart and your attention and your devotion, they are the most valuable commodities that you have. And there's an enemy, and he's real, and he hates you. And he wants to do everything to sabotage every effort you make towards God. And when you do make a move towards God, he wants to immediately distract you away from it. I mean, you experience this all day, every day. And you might not even notice it. And that's exactly how the enemy wants it. I told you, the the enemy's a coward. He hides. The name of Jesus makes him tremble. Revelation chapter 12 says that human beings filled with the Holy Spirit with their testimony and the blood of the Lamb will be the end of him. So he hates you. And I'm sorry to break the news, but you are never going to grow in your faith without experiencing some serious resistance. And here's the thing about it. It's not going to feel supernatural. It's not going to feel supernatural. Like plates aren't going to start flying out of your cabinets. You're not going to start seeing like demons in the reflection in the mirror. Why would the enemy do that? If, If the enemy did that, what would you do? You would run to Jesus so fast. It's way more subtle than that. It's not how he works. You know how the enemy most frequently works? How the spiritual warfare thing most frequently works? He just makes you busy. It just distracts you. It just gets you thinking about 
any frivolous life thing. Just makes you busy. Work gets crazy. Kids get wild. New shows come out. Your phone starts dinging with notifications that really don't even matter. New restaurant opens up. I mean, you, the list goes on and on. See, the most dangerous seasons in your spiritual life aren't bad seasons. They're, they're busy seasons. Prayer goes out the window. Stop going to church. Stop going to your home group. Stop reading the Bible. You start ignoring texts and calls from your Christian friends. And it's like every connection you have to God starts getting unplugged just one by one until there's just nothing left because you were busy. I've seen it so many times. It's, it's kind of scary, actually. Like someone will get baptized or they'll share their testimony or they'll sign up for like a Bible reading class or prayer class or like they'll stop me in the hallway and be like, man, I had never heard that song that way before or like that scripture like spoke to me and like, man, I feel God calling me to make this decision to just pursue him and like chase after him more. Like they'll make this spiritual decision to, to move towards God and then inevitably life happens and things just get busy for them. And like they step onto the spiritual battleground and they didn't even know it. Like they just thought it was life stuff. But I'm telling you, there is no just life stuff. Everything is spiritual. And it's like unbeknownst to them, the enemies just like started to attack them and they don't even know it. Starting to work to, to wreck the progress that you've made in your spiritual life. That's why the passage says that it's not flesh and blood that's your enemy. Human beings aren't your enemy. It's not your kids being crazy. It's not your boss being overbearing. It's not your judgmental parents. It's not your, your best friend that backstabbed you. It's not the president of the United States or the people in the other political party. Human beings are not your enemy. Your real enemy is the one who is trying to get you to be bitter and resentful and angry because of all the things going on in your life so that when he gets you in that season, he can convince you to just run to your phone or run to Netflix, or run to the liquor store, or run to the dispensary, or run to your friend with benefits, or wherever it is that you run to distract yourself when life gets busy. And the thing is, if you don't understand that this is happening, if you're not even aware of it, you'll just chalk it up to, that's just life, you know? You, you justify it. Man, I'll get back to church when things calm down. I'll start reading the Bible again when I have time. I'll pray when I get a minute, but I'm telling you, these are like the moments. And progress just like stops, your growth stops. Your faith starts to feel stale, your heart starts to get hardened. And it's like the enemy just smirks up, I got him, I got him again. And I'm not saying this to discourage you, I'm just saying it so you know, like if you want to grow in this, if you want to see Jesus, if you want to experience restoration and revival and spiritual fire and transformation, if you want to experience all these things, it's not going to be easy for you. There are spiritual forces at play in this universe that are going to make you fight for it. That's the first practical bend to all of this. And so the question then becomes, how, how, do, we, how do we fight? Will we fight spiritual battles with the armor of God? As we just read, but let's read it again in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day you didn't know, we're in the evil day. Look around. And having done all to stand firm. 
Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I hope, I hope this goes without saying, but I've heard some pretty wild sermons on this passage. This passage about the armor of God, this is what's called a metaphor. If you're familiar with English terms, this is a metaphor. There's not literal armor of God that you physically put on your body. We're not going to be handing out shields and helmets on your way out today. But I'm telling you, if you, you can get caught up so much on the imagery and the detail about like these pieces of clothing that it's easy to completely miss the entire point of this passage. And so instead of like breaking down each piece of armor, which is typically how this is approached. I'm going to take the armor off the table for a second. I'm sorry if you really love the armor. I'm going to take the armor off the, the table for a second, and I just want to look at the list of things that Paul mentions in this metaphor. And so Paul mentions the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and then you cover all of it with prayer. So check this out. Look at this list. There's seven things on this list, and I don't know if you've picked up on it yet, but only two of the seven do you actually have any kind of control over your interaction with them. The Word of God and prayer. You can choose to pray, you can choose to interact with the Word of God, but the rest of them, you can't bring salvation, you can't produce faith within yourself, you can't give yourself peace, you can't make yourself righteous, and you have no control over the truth. The truth is just the truth. And so rather than leading you to believe that you can arm yourself with all these individual pieces of clothing to get ready for battle, rather than doing that, I'd like to once again show you how all these things actually lead our attention, not to ourselves, but to Jesus. Like That's a spoiler alert for every time we talk, guys, whether it's me or Jamie or anyone else. The point of us being up here, what we're doing when we stand up here is we're just trying to put a finger on your chin and turn your eyes back towards Jesus. And so let me show you how this armor works. I made this little diagram because I'm a visual learner. Maybe some of you guys are too. And you'll notice that all the qualities of the armor of God are listed in this circle, all seven. And you'll also notice that one of them, truth, is circled. And truth is circled because for any and every believer, you always have to start with the truth. And so what's the truth? The truth is that human beings are imperfect. We're broken, we're selfish, we're stubborn. I'm sorry if this is news to you, but it's true. And every single one of us has lived our way in a way, lived our lives in a way that God didn't design. That's called sin. It's what we call sin. And sin is not always like obviously evil. Sin just is, means you're living in a way that's not within God's design and his righteousness and his holiness. And because of this sin that exists inside of our lives, we can't have a relationship with a perfect and holy God. It, it, our sin and his holiness just do not match up. Think of it like a bad heart transplant. Like if they're not compatible, the, the body will just reject the heart. It, it doesn't work. And so your sin makes you incompatible with God. And we needed a way to erase that sin so that we could be 
compatible with God, and that's why Jesus came. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, and then with his death on the cross, his blood had the power to erase all of those consequences and make us compatible with God again. And anyone who believes this message and puts their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. And that's the only way that we can be saved. The only way. There is no other way. No amount of effort or being a good person will suffice. No other religion or religious pursuits will be good enough. It's only by putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone that we can be saved and brought into relationship with a perfect and holy God. Now that's the truth. And that's where everyone has to begin. And I believe that's why Paul listed it as the first piece of armor. And so you have this encounter with the truth, and for some people, if they're prepared to hear this, when they hear this message, it'll create this faith inside of them, and they'll come to make this decision to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And when someone makes the decision to put their faith in Jesus Christ, that's what leads to salvation. And the word salvation means that in this life, you get to experience a relationship with the holy, living God, you get to experience the fullness of the life that he's designed for you. And salvation also means that when you die, you will spend eternity with this God. And then salvation, which is often called being saved, if you've heard the phrase being saved, salvation is what will lead you to righteousness, which is just a fancy way of saying that where we were once incompatible with God, that we're now incompatible with, or we are now compatible with him, we've been made right with him. That's essentially what being righteousness, and, or what being righteous in a, a biblical context means, that you're right with God. And then knowing that you're right with God and experiencing his love and grace wash over you like a tidal wave, that brings a perfect peace, a peace that the Bible says surpasses understanding. We can't even grasp it. And then as you begin to live this life, that's when you come to the things that you can control, prayer and your interaction with the Word of God. And, and prayer is not always just like kneeling in your bedroom and, and like with your hands crossed and your eyes closed. Sometimes prayer is like yelling at God when you're in your car. Sometimes prayer is like thinking about God when you're on a walk, like on the beach or in the woods. Sometimes prayer is just even the deep sense of gratitude you feel when you hold your kids or you recognize the ways God has, has blessed your life. And the Word of God, yes, the Word of God means reading Scripture, but it also means listening to worship music. It also means staying in community with other believers. It also means coming to church on Sunday mornings or, or listening to people speak in a way that turns your attention back towards Jesus. And both of these things, prayer and the Holy Spirit, when you do them consistent, consistently, they'll lead you where? They'll lead you back to the truth. This is a picture of the Christian life, and you go through the cycle, and it's beautiful, and you drift sometimes, but prayer and the Word of God, He'll always bring you back to the truth, and it produces faith and salvation, righteousness. It's this beautiful cycle. But you see, when you're not dwelling on the things of God, and when you allow yourself to be influenced and preached to by the world around you, and trust me, the world's always preaching to you, it's like you get to this area of your life prayer and the word of God where you can control some of these, your interaction with him and instead of doing them, you drift away. And if you're not interacting with God, you're not going to be led to the truth. You're going to be led to whatever lie the world tells you to. And when you do that, it's easy for the truth to become murky. It's easy for your perception to get blurred or skewed, even as we talked about a couple weeks, for you to be put to sleep spiritually. It's easy to fall out of the cycle altogether. And so you see, I, I don't think Paul is telling us to focus on all these individual areas. You've got to strengthen 
your salvation. You got to strengthen your faith. You, you got to really work on your peace today. And then it, it's like, it's not all of these individual pieces that we arm ourselves with. It's actually just this long and detailed metaphor that is pushing us to put on Jesus Christ, to embrace our identity in him and pursue him and obsess over him. They all point to Jesus. Literally, every single piece of armor goes back to him, is directly connected to him. I want to show you something crazy. I started digging into this, and it kind of like blew my mind a little bit. But in John 14, 6, it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the truth. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then in Acts 4.12 it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men other than the name of Jesus Christ by which we must be saved. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, For our sake... He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. In Ephesians 2.14, which we read a few weeks ago, it says, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In 1 Thessalonians, it says, pray without ceasing. You can read that as stay connected to Jesus all day, every day, every second of your life. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So the will of God in Jesus is that you will stay connected to him through prayer all the time. And then in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, talking about Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is also the word. So Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Salvation can be found in no other name than the name of Jesus. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is our perfect peace. He invites us to pray unceasingly. In other words, stay connected to him every second of every day. And Jesus is the Word and all Scripture and all creation points to Him. Like, don't you get it? Jesus is the armor of God. Jesus is the armor of God. That's why Paul writes in Romans 13, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is, almost, this is the same author, Romans, Ephesians. Ephesians, it's a little bit more detailed. You have a little bit more metaphor. This Romans passage saying the exact same thing. Put on Jesus Christ. So you're not putting on all these individual pieces of armor to like join the Lord's army and go and defeat the evil in the world with your best effort. I don't care who you are. You don't have it within yourself to withstand the depravity of this life. You just don't. You're not that guy. You're not that girl. You, you, just, you never will be. You don't have it in you to fight against the temptation of self-gratification. You don't have the willpower to overcome your lust problem. 
You don't have the strength to defeat the worry and anxiety and emptiness you feel. You don't have the firepower to let go of your desire and need to be liked and acknowledged by people. You don't have the confidence to live with just a a little and not want more and more like the rest of the world, like we're just no match. And as long as we read passages like this about the armor of God and continue to think that they're about us and what we can bring to the table to win the fight, as long as we read passages this way, we will continue to get beaten to the ground until there's nothing left of us spiritually. And you might not like hearing that. And I know it goes against every message the world preaches of like, you do you and you have it within yourself. And like the person in the mirror is the only one that you can count on. And if you just put in the time and the energy and the effort and like you just manifest it hard enough, you can have the life that you dream, but it's all lies. Spiritual, literal lies. And if you need proof, you can look at the world, you can see how empty and wretched and broken so much of the world is and it's because they have bought into the lies. It's all spiritual warfare. It's literally the enemy speaking through the mouths of those in our society through every facet of media we have just lying to you all the time and trying to get you to focus on yourself or literally anything else in the world that didn't hang on a cross and die to make you righteous in the eyes of God. And if you're obsessing over anything that isn't Jesus Christ, man, if you are putting on the identities and ideas and values of the world instead of waking up every day and fighting the fight to stay focused on him and to put on Jesus, man, All those other roads, they lead to death. They lead to disappointment, disillusionment, heartache, spiritual, eternal death. And so how do you fight? Well, practically, you can fight from your knees. And I don't, man, I don't know how often you're praying. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that none of us are praying anywhere near as much as we we probably need to. I think the more wretched the world you live in, probably the more essential time with Jesus is, and and you can think America is great as much as you want. America is great in some ways, but it's also one of the most spiritually deprived countries in the world. So don't get confused. Like you, we live in a great country. It's also a spiritual desert. And if you're not drinking living water, if you're not drinking Jesus in every day through his word and spending time with him in prayer. The Bible says a man will reap what he sows. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. A man will reap what he sows. People think that's like the biblical version of like karma. Like if you do good things, good things will come back around to you. But if you do bad things, bad things will come back around to you. Just biblical karma. That's what the verse means, right? A man will reap what he sows. No. This verse has nothing to do with karma. Karma's fake. The Bible says that God sends the rains on the just and the unjust. This this is what the Bible actually says. This is what that verse actually says. It says, don't be misled. Remember that you can't ignore God and get away with it. A man will always reap just the kind of crop he sows. If he sows to please his own wrong desires, he will be planting seeds of evil, and he will surely reap a harvest of spiritual decay and death. But if he plants the good things of the Spirit, he will reap the everlasting life that the Holy Spirit gives him. And let us not get tired of doing what is right, for after a while we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't get discouraged and give up. This, you, this 
passage that says you can't ignore God and get away with it. It's not a threat. It's not like a threat from God to you. Ignore me and I'm going to punish you. It's a, it's a literal consequence. God's saying you can't ignore me and have a spiritually fulfilled life. That's never going to work. Like what you put on, what you wake up and give your attention to, what you spend your days pursuing, what seeds you allow to be planted inside of yourself, that's going to determine your spiritual health, it's going to determine your fulfillment in this life, and it's going to determine your eternity. And I'm not saying it to scare you, I just, I just want to be honest with you. Because it's either Jesus or it's not. And we all worship something. Like human beings are creatures of worship. We all worship something. Some people worship themselves. Some people worship money. Some people worship sex. Some people worship identity. Some people worship acknowledgement. Some people worship other people. But there's only one thing in the universe that actually leads to life when you worship it, and it's Jesus. Jesus is the armor of God. He's the Savior of the world. He is everything. And when you put him on, you'll experience life. And if you don't, you won't. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for these words of Paul. I pray that you would wake us up, help us to see just how spiritual our life actually is. God, I pray that you would help us to see that nothing is coincidental, nothing is accidental, nothing is ordinary, that every decision we make is having a spiritual impact on us and that there's an enemy who's real and is trying to derail what you're trying to do in our lives. God, I pray that you will help us to see that and fight that off and continue to put all our effort in focusing on you. Not an effort to try to be a better person or try to fix our, our lives or get ourselves together or fight the evil in our world, literally to put our effort in putting our eyes on you. That if we set our focus and set our hearts on you, that all this other stuff will fall into place. I thank you for being the truth. I thank you for being our righteousness and our salvation. I thank you for being the author of our faith. Thank you for giving us a perfect peace. I thank you for allowing us to pray to you all the time, whereas people couldn't connect with you without jumping through all these hoops before, that we just have access to you all the time. Lord, I'm thankful that you are the word. We can connect with you. We can chase after you. And your word says that if we seek after you, we'll find you. God, I pray that this message, this passage from Paul will stick in our hearts. God, that will wake us up to the world that we're living in and what we need to do to keep our eyes focused on you. Make this a church continually that is dependent and desperate for you. And let the world around us see that. Love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.